I can't particularly imagine that leopard skin underwear is service issue garments. Welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. This episode, we're featuring another paired escape from people who came from two completely different services. We've got Captain Ralph Buckley Palm, who was with the South African Air Force in 94 Squadron. And we also have Captain George Sukas of the Intelligence Corps, attached to the Special Boat Service. So a very rare unit for us to cover. Mm. But one that's going to be particularly interesting, I think. Obviously, they both have completely different capture stories. So I think probably the best thing is if we focus on Palm to start off with. We'll have a chat through him and his escape attempts up to the point that he is going to get to meet George. And then we'll cover George's attempt. So let's start with Palm. Now, Palm was a particularly interesting one in trying to research his background. Because I had him down as 26 years old. That's not strictly correct, because... It appears that he wasn't quite the person, at least on paper, that we thought he was. No. And in fact, we've come across Pam before. He featured quite heavily in the two Alistair Cram episodes that we did with Professor David Goss back in Series 1. Which was, I think, Episodes 11 and 12, wasn't it? That's correct, yeah. Although his given name was Ralph Buckley Pam, we know he was known as Buck Pam. We do. But it wasn't actually his real name. No. So, referencing back to David's book about Alistair Cram, he actually gives more detail on who Pam was and his background. His actual name was Rephus Palm and he anglicised it in rejection of his Afrikaner past, a past filled with bigotry and abuse. He was the youngest of nine siblings brought up on the farm in the middle of the Transvaal. His mother, Anne Buckley, where of course his middle name came from, of course, died while he was quite young, leaving him to be brought up by his siblings and a stern father whom the children all despised. One by one they left the farm, most disappearing in the middle of the night, until Buck and a half-brother by an African mother were the only two left. Then at about 16, Buck too ran off. For the next decade and a half, he travelled across southern Africa, drifting from job to job, working in mines around Johannesburg and then struck out on his own to prospect for gold. He also made a living as a hunter and at some point was even a professional wrestler. Eventually, he joined a sister in the Okavango Delta and after that to southwest Africa, where he lived with another sister who was married to a settler. It was at that point war came. Now, he wanted to be a fighter pilot, but he knew that at 31 he would never be taken, so he lied about his age, claiming he was born in 1915 rather than 1908. Over the years, he would forget what he put down and either write the wrong date or give an age that didn't quite compute. He was accepted to be a pilot and passed and was commissioned as a lieutenant. Eight months later, he was flying hurricanes over Libya and the Middle East. He was a good pilot and as a night fighter shot down at least two planes when in late 1941 he came under attack while strafing near Tobruk. So yeah, so hence why the confusion because I'd found him under Ralph Buckley Palm as being 26 mm-hmm. and uh, I was fairly sure on that and then uh, as you pointed out you went, this is not quite as we know this. So a very interesting character for sure. Officially on his report, his peacetime employment was a, as a mechanical engineer, which I th- believe was a car mechanic, I think it's mentioned. I think as. so, yeah. But as you say, he jumped from job to job and he'd been a gold miner and a number wrestler. of other different things. Yeah, wrestler. I mean, he must be a big man. Well, David Goss made a 
lot of reference to Buck Pam's physical size, and apparently he was you know legendary for being just being enormous and this giant of a figure in both personality and physique. Which is interesting as a as a fighter pilot as well. Because mm. I mean, I'm fairly robustly re- built. Robustly built. Thank you, Dave. Um, and I just about fit in the Spitfire in all dimensions. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hurricane is thankfully bigger, and from the descriptions we've got, Palm was a big man. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think probably bigger than me. So the Hurricane was probably well suited for him, which as far as fighters go, it was probably about the best option for him. Eminently, he made it as a fighter pilot, and we find him with 94 Squadron, which was a South African Air Force unit that was, at the start of the war, operating Gladiators, which was a 1930s biplane, pretty slow, pretty outdated. They were operating in Aden, but when the unit moved to Egypt in May of 1941, they did change to the Hawker Hurricane, which potentially would have been with the training that would have had to go on about the time that Buck would have joined them. They were predominantly doing day and night offensive patrols, but they did begin ground attack roles in November of 1941. Now, we've got to look about where they were and what was going on back then. So, looking at where he was shot down, where his report mentions action, and what was happening with timelines, we're basically looking at the end of the siege of Tobruk. Mm -hmm. Now, lots of people have heard of Tobruk, mostly because of Rommel. Effectively, the British had captured the port of Tobruk from the Italians at the start of 1941. The Germans wanted it because it was a closer supply port for their activities in Africa. They already had Benghazi, which was about 560 miles from Tobruk, and they had Tripoli, which was 930 miles away. So to get Tobruk would have meant that their supply lines to the Africa Corps would be a lot better. Significantly shorter. Exactly. But of course we held it. And that was why they actually lay siege to Tobruk, and that started on the 10th of April, 1941. The Allies did lay on some relief efforts to try and get in there. There were effectively three relief efforts, one in May, one in June, and one that started in November and ended in December, but with that last relief operation uh, on the 27th of November the 8th Army actually managed to relieve the besieged port and hold it from there on so moving to where Buckley was operating at the time so he was in action two days after the the city had been relieved by the 8th but still whilst the relief mission is going on and he starts his report by saying I was in a ground strafing operation behind Tobruk and was shot down by several enemy fighters on the 29th of November 1941 so I suspect with the Germans either holding off or potentially retreating Mm-hmm. They were trying to reinforce the defences around the recently relieved port. I bailed out and came down about 80 miles west of El Adam. I was shot through the hip, and the fighters continued to shoot me up as I lay down in some shrubs. Some Italians came looking for me in a truck, but did not see me, although they did find my parachute, which they made off with. I started to move east as soon as it became dark. I walked through the night and continued for the next two days. This is whilst being shot through the hip. Mm. Laying up by day and walking at night, obviously because it's much cooler. On the third day, I saw some MT, which is mechanical transports, which looked like ours. And as I could not have continued owing to the state of my leg, I decided to take a chance and approach the trucks. I found they were Italians with some of our captured wagons, and I was rounded up. Now, how unfortunate is that that you see vehicles that you vaguely recognise mm-hmm. as belonging to your own forces, and they turn out to be captured vehicles, and you're caught? So he says he was moved first to an anti-aircraft post, and then onto a field hospital and from there to Derna. After four days, I was moved by hospital ship to Bari. From Bari, I was sent to Piacenza, where I was in hospital for about three months, so a significant Mm. wound through the hip. And from Piacenza, I went to Sulmona, which was Camp 78, on about the 8th of March. So 
effectively we're four months just over since his shoot down mm-hmm. that he's now actually into a camp he clearly needed a lot of medical treatment due to severity of his injury yeah so we've already touched upon the fact that Pam is quite a significant physical specimen yes we've already seen that he was a professional wrestler before the war mentioned that David Gus made reference to it he was shot through the hip and still managed to walk for three days through the desert of North Africa yeah having recovered in hospital over three months the Italians are in effect releasing into their camp system a beast of a man a beast of a man who seemed to take captivity as a personal insult but I mean he would have stood out like a sore thumb compared to absolutely you know it, it would have been a challenging thing for him to attempt any escape Yes, it would, but that didn't stop him. It certainly as, didn't. As we are about to find out, because he was to make at least six escape attempts before eventually being successful. So his first attempt was at Solmona, and it was almost immediately after he arrived there. So with three others, they started a tunnel from a bungalow in which they were being kept in the camp. So this was their billet. They were mm-hmm. billeted in this bungalow and they started a tunnel from there. So he states, We had to go down 18 feet before starting to push the tunnel horizontally. Only one could enter the tunnel at a time to work. We put the earth between the roof and the ceiling of the bungalow, hoisting it up by a rope in pillow slips. The tunnel was nearly complete and we burrowed beyond the outside wire when an Italian donkey cart caused the earth to collapse, exposing the tunnel. That seems rather unfortunate, but also quite funny. It's slightly funny. I mean, obviously the Germans took to driving vehicles around camps to try and find shallow tunnels and things like this. I would have thought 18 feet would have been enough to protect from that. Yeah, particularly from a donkey. Whilst I appreciate donkeys can pull fairly large loads, mm. it was really a bad, a bad day for them. Yes, an unfortunate outcome. Yeah. So that was his first attempt. Now, the net result of that was that he was actually moved to Camp 17, which was just outside Pichenza, and was located in an old castle, a wing of which was still occupied by nuns. So it's a bit of a theme occurring here, because both Dean Drummond and Dolby have featured monasteries or monks and now we've got nuns in the castle yeah so having arrived in this next camp he immediately started devising a scheme where he started a tunnel from the panelling under his bed the tunnel was effectively to go down through the wall below the nuns quarters to emerge outside the wire in amongst some trees and he states that the tunnel was nearly complete when the SBO that senior British officer told me that in an interview with the commandant the latter had laughingly said we know all about the tunnel so tell your officers to spare themselves the trouble now he and a lieutenant Ford with whom he was working on this tunnel stopped working for a fortnight in order to ascertain whether it was their tunnel which was being suspected. Or, or a bluff. Or a bluff. You, know, you or, can make it as a throwaway comment. And exactly. And when no move was made by the Italians, they just continued working again after that fortnight. However, that afternoon, the commandant again mentioned the fact to the SBO and the following day, workmen arrived and blocked up the entrance of the tunnel. So it appears that they weren't they bluffing. Were, yeah, they weren't bluffing. Now, after this, Pam started becoming suspicious that there was a stool pigeon who had given the scheme away within the camp now we've come across a number of stool pigeons before especially in italian camps actually yeah and so he started on yet another tunnel so this is now his third escape attempt which was located in the garden where they'd been planting tomatoes Mm mm-hmm now, this is relatively similar to what has otherwise been termed a mole tunnel. Now, we haven't really covered mole tunnels in that much detail. We have a little bit. I think the mole was featured in the Great Escape film, even though it didn't yes. happen at Stalagraph 3. Yes. It was in the film. I'll quickly summarise, yeah. but you're right. There is a mole escape attempt in the film of the Great Escape, even though that never actually happened yeah. in Stalagraph 3. So, in summary, the idea is that you dig a very, very short tunnel to get underneath the wire in a relatively short 
short period of time whereby all the soil that you remove you just push behind you to fill up the hole behind you the idea that you essentially just move forward and fill in behind you so that by the time you break out at the other side there's only just you still in the tunnel and you've yeah. now broken out and the other side of the wire so this scheme isn't identical to that that is kind of a quote-unquote traditional mole tunnel yeah and so there is some similarity to what happened here so i'll pick up i made a frame which i sank into the earth of this garden and as several of us were gardening around the beds it was possible to start digging down deep without anyone noticing that i'd vanished 10 feet into the ground god that's a considerable hole yes I would only have had to progress eight yards on the ground to enable me to emerge outside the wire into some bushes. I reached what I estimated to be just below the wire when I was sent for by the commandant and found that the Italians had discovered my scheme. How was a complete mystery to all of us? Interesting. Now that line alone suggests to me that they weren't a million miles off with the stool pigeon. Yeah. And there ended his third attempt. There ended his third escape attempt. Yet again undeterred, Mm -hmm. as we're starting to pick up in Pam's character, his fourth attempt was to attempt to try to get through the attic over the nun's quarters to a window in the tower from which it would have been possible to let himself down by rope outside the wire. So the wire was very near to the window, basically parallel to the window so by dropping himself out the window he got over the other side of the wire yeah the plan was to then make a run for the trees on the other side he had successfully broken through a wall to reach the attic and was merely waiting for an opportunity ideally some sort of stormy night when the sentry box was suddenly moved outside the wire and tower and window floodlit now again this screams still pigeon to me yes you'd have thought though by now he'd be more cautious about who he was you know i mean do we know if there was an actual escape committee within that camp there may have been but the there's no mention of it. There's no mention of it. So one would have thought if you're confiding in the escape committee and he sounds like he's acting relatively alone in what he's doing, it would have to have been a leak from there. Yes, you would have to assume so. Nonetheless, he was still determined to try and escape and having tried pretty much every other route available to him in this camp, he decided that uh, he was going to try and escape through a coal cellar this time. Okay. So he'd managed to find a coal cellar which led outside but had been bricked up. In effect, he, he was cultivating a plant which he used as a blind to cover his entrance and he managed to make an opening into the cellar and had already commenced tunnelling from the cellar to the wire when he was suddenly told to pack his things and that he was being moved to Camp 5 at Gavi. Now this is in September 42. Now I want to touch upon Gavi very briefly again. I want to reference back to Alistair Cram's episodes because it is at Gavi that Alistair and Buck Pam meet Mm -hmm. but Gavi itself the best way to describe it as the Italians bad boy camp so it's similar to cold it's in that sense it's where they sent all the inveterate escapers and I think it's fair to say after reading out five different escape attempts in a relatively short period of time Buck Pam can be qualified as an inveterate escaper in fact I'm amazed he managed to reach as many as five escapes before being sent off is Gavi a castle or a monastery or a mansion so it is a castle so it is really figuratively more more accurately it'd be a fortress oh wow very insurmountable fortress at that on different levels on a mountainside although fortresses and castles are designed to keep people out they're not very good at keeping people in well this one was quite good oh was it yes Okay. It was on different levels. It had angular walls, so there was no kind of straight lines to hide around. Hide around. around. Yeah, exactly. It was it was a very formidable prospect. Okay. Now, as I said, this was September '42. Now he only arrived in Solmona, the first camp we referenced, mm-hmm. in on the eighth of March, 1942. So these five escape attempts have taken place in the period of six months. 
Wow. So when I say he's an inveterate escaper, I'm not exaggerating yeah. in the slightest. So we now have Buckpam in Gavi. We do. In September 42. In which September 42. is actually a very useful date. So that leads us on quite neatly to Captain George Sukas of the Intelligence Corps attached to the Special Boat Service. So Sukas was a Greek national mm-hmm. who was living in Egypt when the war began. And he enlisted into the British Army as an interpreter. Mm-hmm. He was not a young man. I found that he was no. born in 1899. Right. So he was just turning 43 when he went on this mission in which he was... Now captured. there are many listeners who will be older than 43 who would argue that he was extremely young man but, but not, not to necessarily be serving on the front line correct for frontline service i mean you're looking at people 18 for example the royal air force if you were much beyond 30 going mm-hmm. onto frontline service it, it just wasn't going to happen mm-hmm. unless you had already established pre-war well, well we've literally just seen that buck pam lied to reduce his age from 31 to 26 in it, order to fight on the front line exactly so we're looking at somebody who's turning 43 when they are going out on this mission who joined up when they were 40 mm-hmm. so you know it's, it's, a, it's a later to be taken in but obviously as an interpreter it's a very useful thing but this is interesting because this is the first time we've touched on the SBS the special boat service mm-hmm. now obviously in Dean Drummond's double header we've looked at the SAS special yes. air service so and it's- before that in the Jack Byrne episode in series two absolutely so i think it's important to just touch a little bit on the sbs and why it was that sukas found him where he was so the sbs really is the special forces unit of the royal navy traditionally manned mostly by royal marine commandos it specializes in special reconnaissance offensive actions and demolitions and direction of say sea to ground bombardments and things like that and some artillery work that would go on so it is the naval sister of the sas of the sas yes the real thing that makes it stand out between the sbs and the sas is that the sbs was specialized in maritime amphibious and river environments Mm -hmm. for attacking various locations now just like the sas the sbs was relatively in its infancy initially it had been involved with some reconnaissance on roads but more recently as we covered with Dolby it had been involved with the evacuation of troops from Crete Right. So that had been their first sort of blooding Not that Dolby was in the SBS but they he were He wasn't but, but they were used to extract people They were active people. Yes, yeah, on Crete, as was yeah, it. That's yeah. what they were specialising in. Now, Sukas was involved in Operation Anglo. Now, that's not something that is right out there. It was one of the biggest ones to find information. There is some information on it. Mm-hmm. So a little quick bit of background to that. Operation Anglo was basically a mission to attack two airfields on the island of Rhodes. And it took place by submarine to drop them off to reconnaissance the airfields and try and destroy the airfields. It was really set to run from the 31st of August of 1942 through to about the 18th of September, when at that point, those commandos would come back off the hills, get out to the submarine and leave again. It was a small team going. Mm. The garrison on Rhodes numbered 30,000 personnel. Anglo sent in eight SBS commandos and four Greek assistants, one of which was Sukas. Sukas. Two of those Greeks had previously been residents of Rhodes and were being used as guides. Mm-hmm. And then there were two interpreters as part of the information gathering. Okay. Now that's an important bit because you looked into it and of the 12 individuals on this, there are 11 firm names that are published. Mm-hmm. And yet we found this report mm-hmm. that gives us number 12. So I can't say for absolute definite, because I haven't read every single book ever on the SBS or on Operation Anglo, but every report I could find said that there were 11 confirmed names, none of which mentioned Sukis. So we think we potentially have an exclusive here. Mm-hmm. Almost a reverse exclusive in the yes. sense that we haven't made the research into Operation Anglo to true. unveil the 12th name. True, true, good point. It's yes. kind of the reverse whereby we have the name and find that he was 
was active on Operation Anglo. And so we think that Sukis was the 12th man. We do. We do. On Operation Anglo, who has previously been unknown. Yeah. Now, the reason that these bases were important was because they were being used by German and Italian bombers to basically attack the Royal Navy convoys. And the idea was that these raiders were to be to go on and to try to destroy as many aeroplanes infrastructure and uh, fuel holdings and everything else to really limit the ability of German bombers and Italian bombers to attack the Royal Navy. So turning to George's account, so he starts by saying, I was attached as an intelligence officer to the party of 12 under Captain Allot, which left Beirut on the 1st of September 42 by submarine under instructions from the Royal Navy to destroy the aerodromes at Rhodes. We arrived on the island on the 4th of September and hid in the hills until the 12th of September when the raid on the aerodrome was to be made. After the raid, we would take to the hills again. I was with Lieutenant Sutherland and a Marine. Now that is interesting in itself because the group split into two. So mm-hmm. obviously there were two airfields mm-hmm. and you wanted to simultaneously attack both airfields so that surprise was not lost at the mm-hmm. one that you didn't attack. So the two airfields were Kalathos and Maritza and the raiders that were split into two groups, one of which, under Lieutenant Sutherland, was to attack Kalathos. So seeing as George says he was with him, that was almost certainly the one that he was going to go for. Okay. Now, he mentions that, as I had been suffering from malaria, I had not taken part in the actual raid, but had carried out the intelligence gathering mission, which I was sent to do. That was his main primary thing, but mm. malaria, whilst out in the scrub. It's not conducive it's not really to the intelligence gathering either, is it? No, no, his mind might have been elsewhere. Now, it says, on the 16th of September, Sutherland and the Marine left me in a creek on the shore while they went to try and get food and water and to recover a torch which they had hidden in the mountains. While I was alone, I was surrounded by Italian soldiers and was too weak to try to escape. Now, a little bit like the Dean Drummond episode, where they were all to get back and rendezvous to get taken away by submarine. As we know in the Dean Drummond one, submarine didn't turn up. Mm-hmm. In this actual situation, the submarine did turn up. Okay. Now, whilst they had these little collapsible canoes that they had managed to get in from the subs, they were gone mm-hmm. by the time it came back. Only two of the twelve actually managed to be picked up by submarine. Okay. They signalled with the torch, so we know that Sutherland managed to find that torch that he left Sukas to go and find, and he signalled for the submarine to come back in. He and one other were the only ones to enter the sub, and they had to swim out to the submarine. They couldn't row out there. Everyone else was taken prisoner. Now, unfortunately for two of those Greek individuals who had previously been resident on Rhodes, the Germans had obviously picked them up, realised that they were from Rhodes and previously escaped and put them on trial. Both were found guilty of treason, one of which was imprisoned, and one was executed. But all of the commandos, the SBS commandos, and George ended up being interred in prisoner of war camps. So overall, when you're looking at 12 individuals going on to try and attack the airfields, I suppose you could ask, was it a success? Now overall, we know that 33 aircraft were totally destroyed, along with a large amount of the fuel supplies for both airfields. So I suppose in a way you could say it was successful, but it was for the cost of... 12 individuals that then couldn't be used again and these are highly trained individuals so I think we'll leave it to our listeners to decide whether it was worthy of the mm-hmm. of the thing because ultimately the fuel would have been resupplied with the next ship docking on roads and the aeroplanes could be flown in and replaced so I think it probably put a temporary halt I don't know whether there were particular Royal Naval convoys going past at the time that therefore didn't suffer as much as they would have done but I think it would only have been a very temporary measure of reduction of activities of the aircraft from that base. I want to pick up quickly on the commando point you raised earlier yeah. because I wondered whether they would have fallen under the commando order. Mm-hmm. And I actually looked this up in preparation for this episode because there were actually two commando orders. The first one, 
came in July 1942, which stipulated that parachutist commandos should be handed over to the Gestapo. Now, we all know what happens when you end up with the Gestapo. Yes. But it was parachutists that the first commando order applied to. Mm -hmm. That was the 21st of July 1942, so two months before this took place. The second commando order was in the 18th of October 1942, so a month after this. And it is that one that is perhaps the more famous, because that's the one that states that all Allied commandos captured in Europe or Africa should be killed immediately without trial, even if in proper uniforms or attempted to surrender. Wow. Now, it's a very famous OKW order, mm -hmm. but what we find here is that Sukas and his 11 other a team of commandos fell within a window in which they were commandos and captured, but because they were not parachutists, the original commando order did not apply to them. Mm. So while, sadly, one of them was executed for treason, had this mission taken place maybe a month or two later, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that all 12 would have been shot out of hand. So he, he has fallen within a very small window in which, being a commando, he escaped from the fate instantaneous, many other, instantaneous execution. execution which fell upon a number of other commandos that took place throughout the war. I just thought that was a really interesting point on which to pick up on. As I say, I was genuinely interested in he served as a commando, therefore did the commando order apply? Well, I mean, as he says of his capture, he says, after capture, my hands were tied behind my back and were not released until my arms were badly swollen. I did everything I could to get my arms into as bad a condition as possible so that the Italians would untie my hands. After they did untie them, they put me in handcuffs and this enabled me to get from my shorts a piece of paper on which I had written notes of information that I had been collecting. I swallowed the paper. So he's destroying evidence. Good man. I mean, he would obviously not be aware of what was coming up next, potentially, so get rid of anything that's going to mm -hmm. incriminate, I think. He says, I was taken to a police station where I was interrogated during the night by a lieutenant colonel. I did not answer any of his questions. After about half an hour, I was taken to a small room and later I was sent to the main Italian army camp in the middle of the town of Rhodes and put into the prison there. A few hours later, one of the Greek naval officers from our party was brought in with two marines and we were all in the same cell for about 36 hours. We were interrogated the next day by other officers but none of us disclosed any information. We learned that our two guides had been captured. Well, that's the ones we talked about that were put on yeah. trial who had previously been on Rhodes. One of them had been shot for refusing to talk while the other, under threat that both he and his family would be shot, had given away information about the position of the party and the location of our rubber boats. So whilst this guide had been a native of Rhodes and had been serving with the Greek forces in Egypt, he had been recognised by an Italian officer, which is rather unfortunate on an island the size of Rhodes that somewhere mm -hmm. that you'd left previously, you were then recognised by someone that was there. Yeah. But that goes to show why they were captured and ultimately why the boats were not there to row back out to the subs and they had to swim. We were then sent to the main concentration camp in the middle of the island, which at that time was chiefly occupied by Greek internees. We were put into a small wooden hut in the middle of the camp and the Greek naval officer and I were put together in a small room which had no windows and which was infected with bugs. Well, we've covered the appalling conditions that are found in these particular theatres mm. with Dolby. Again, it's a situation where infestation and disease could be rife. Mm -hmm. I was suffering from malaria. We'd mentioned that before, that the poor guy didn't go on the raid because he was suffering from malaria. Mm -hmm. And here he is, still with malaria. But it was 11 days until an Italian doctor was brought in. He merely gave me some bismuth, and it was seven days before we were allowed to see Captain Alot and the rest of the party. We were two months in this civilian concentration camp and we were not allowed to send letters though we all wrote the individual prisoner of war postcard the card which i wrote never reached its destination in this camp i got in touch with some of the greek internees and planned an escape by boat to turkey we were to have left by boat on the 20th of november but on the 15th of november we were put onto a truck and taken to a ship which sailed for athens we reached Piraeus about midday on the 16th of november so again another group of people trying to head to turkey initially mm -hmm. but now thwarted by
by a move by the captors to send them to a bigger camp. Yes, but I quite like the fact that despite suffering from malaria and getting what can generously be described as bare minimum of treatment... Yes. He's still attempting to escape. Yes. So we now have Sukas in Athens and has already not quite made his first escape attempt, but at least planned his first escape attempt. Yes. And it was while in Athens, or more accurately, while travelling from Athens, that he made his second escape attempt. Because he was put on another ship and the plan was to sail through the Isthmus of Corinth. So having left on the 16th November, on the night of the 19th November, I managed to get through a porthole and die into the sea and swam to the harbour with considerable difficulty which doesn't really shock me given that he'd been suffering from malaria Mm. I managed to get ashore and make my way past the company of Italian guards and climb a wall I was shot at by the Italians and was slightly wounded in the hand on reaching the town I found a Greek who hid me in a dugout and gave me food he promised to bring me civilian clothes but did not do so I mean a little throwaway comment there shot at injured in the hand carried on yes so I think we've got another fairly robust belligerent individual here which maybe why as we find out later he teamed up with Pam it may have been something of a meeting of minds yes so despite not getting the civilian clothes after dark still in his uniform he started walking and over the next two days he managed to walk about 25 miles getting food from peasants along the way now he managed to stay on the loose for two days but ultimately he felt he had to surrender because they knew he was on the loose and so they were starting to threaten bloodshed for the local civilian population I see, and yeah. so he took the decision to surrender himself in order to avoid that threat becoming reality mm-hmm. now of course we'll never know whether it would have become reality but I think we've got more than enough evidence of how the Germans handled local civilian populations throughout occupied Europe to suggest that it wasn't necessarily an empty threat. Correct, yes. So having been recaptured, he was taken back to the ship by car under heavy guard. And while the ship was to remain in port for another couple of days, he was kept in the cabin without a porthole. Smart. Smart move. Very smart He's move. He's not to be trusted with a porthole. No. And at all times, he had at least one guard right next to him and more guards outside his cabin. So having sailed to Italy, he disembarked at Taranto and was then taken to Campo 75, which is at Bari. He stayed at Barry roughly three months and was then sent on to Campo 47, which is at Modena. Oh, okay. So Barry's quite far south on the east coast and Modena is much further north, much closer to Bologna. Your Italian geography is much better than mine, Dave. Having arrived at Campo 47 at Modena, he almost immediately applied to the escape committee for assistance. Now, once again, we're seeing that he is immediately escape-minded and is already focused on attempting his third escape attempt, having literally just arrived. He states... I speak fluent Italian and know Italy well, including the country on the Swiss frontier. And because of this, I was given priority. So he's a prime escape candidate because of his fluency in the language, his knowledge of the country as a whole, and specifically his knowledge of the area around the Swiss frontier, which of course is the nearest neutral country. Yes. Vatican aside. And so because of that, he was preparing his escape with the SBO, the senior British officer, uh, Colonel John Page, who was directly assisting him in his escape preparations. Right, okay. And indeed was to become so directly assisting in the escape preparations they actually ended up wanting to join him. Now it wasn't unknown for SBOs to take part in escapes mm-hmm. but it wasn't particularly common because of course they had a position of authority within the camp system. And which was needed for continuity for new people coming in and everything else. Exactly. There was a, a point of contact. And was the point of contact with the holding powers Germany, Italy etc. And of course there was a relative element of trust in the sense of if they had to appeal to the holding powers on a point of security or safety or health or any number of issues 
issues that they may have wanted to raise directly with the commandant, they had to have a degree of trust with the commandant of the camp in order to be able to raise that successfully on behalf of the prisoner of war that they were representing. Of course. So that is more the reason why SBOs tended not to take part in escape. However, here we have one Colonel John Page desperately keen to take part in escape. So it's gone beyond just helping him prepare for escape, he is now taking part in it. Yeah. Now he was originally paired up with a captain in the Scots Greys. Now he doesn't give a name, but the Scots Greys are cavalry okay. regiment. The grey is in reference to the colour of the horses that they originally rode. Now the way he describes Colonel Page joining them is quite interesting because he says, at first I only intended to escape with the captain and the plan was to escape disguised as Italian soldiers, but as Colonel Page was himself keen on escaping, the Scots Greys captain and I asked him to join us. Now I do wonder how much of that was <laughs> I get you. Playing politics. Yes. Yeah, knowing which side their bread was buttered on. Yes. So in preparation for the escape, Suka says, I shaved off my moustache and we hid in the other ranks building as Batman for 10 days. The Italians discovered that we were missing, but as they could not find us in the camp, they concluded that we had already escaped. We were all equipped with civilian trousers and jackets made out of khaki blanket material dyed black by brushing wine and ink into it. Waste of good wine. We also had hats made of the same material stiffened with sugar. Waste of good sugar. Yeah. Now, of course, that tradition is called ghosting, isn't it? Where people would hide and you could either be produced at a later time to make up for someone else who genuinely had left the camp but it would also cause enough of a administration confusion at roll call as to see where people were yes although i think this is slightly different from ghosting in the sense that i don't think they went into full hiding within the camp i think they were just missing from the officers compound oh okay so they were just hiding out in the other ranks compound so they weren't in full hiding oh, they were I get they just shifted compound i thought they'd gone and hidden themselves right away not quite no I don't think so okay but nonetheless they were missing from the officer's compound so were seen as having escaped deemed to have been escaped by the Italians yes so the search parties would go out nothing to find and they can follow on at a later date exactly so having got themselves into the other ranks compound, they got out of the camp on the 12th of May 1943 and they did this by joining a party of around about 200 servicemen who were going out for a walk with the Italian guards. Now, while they were counted, it's not too difficult to get lost in amongst 200 other people. No. And equally, he states, as he counted the rows only and not the individuals, we were able to conceal ourselves. So in effect, if they were counting rows of five and one or two rows happened to have six people in it, yeah. as long as they didn't particularly noticed that there was one extra person in that role. Yeah. Didn't really matter, they just figured people have moved around a bit, juggled about. Yeah, yeah or just there's so many roles that adds up to 200. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. Now they were wearing battle dress over their civilian clothes but they were able to remove it quickly and pass it to fellow servicemen within this group. Yeah. Having done that, the man on my left handed me my cap while the man on my right gave me an old waterproof. The man immediately before me stuck my hat on my head and putting on the waterproof, I dived past an Italian soldier and stood among the civilian spectators who were watching the party leave. Ballsy move. Yes, although he does state that the attention of all the guards had been distracted by Italian-speaking prisoners of war. And so while it is a ballsy move, they were able to time it with distractions so that it was done at a particular moment so that they weren't noticed. 
Now, Colonel Page and the Scots Grey's captain also managed to succeed in escaping through the same means. And they originally had a rendezvous at the railway station, but prior to even getting there, he managed to meet up with Page, so they started walking towards the railway station together. On the way, a young teenage boy noticed them and started following them to the station. Now, Sukas, obviously being able to speak the language, went and queued up to buy the tickets. And while he was queuing, the boy continued to watch him and then went to the police office in the station, coming out a little later with four policemen. As soon as Sukas saw this, he went and joined another queue in order to avoid detection. Mm -hmm. But by this time, he and Paige had separated. And when he later went to the rendezvous to try and meet up with them again, he heard Italians saying that two British officers had just been captured. Now, we can safely assume this was Paige and the Scots Grey's captain that he was originally meant to escape with. So Sukas being able to speak Italian is able to listen into the conversation and surmise that his two escape partners are now no longer free to join him. So he has to now continue by himself. Nonetheless, he is still under suspicion and four policemen, two in uniform and two in civilian clothes, noticed him and started following him around the town. Now he did manage to shake them off by going into a cafe where he then went to the lavatory, changed his clothes around and walked back out and wasn't recognised. Nice. However, because he'd been followed, he decided it was probably too risky to go back and try and travel by train, so instead he started walking, eventually reaching Reggio where a carabinieri on a bicycle stopped him and asked him for his papers. Now, again, he was able to speak fluent Italian, so he told him that he was living nearby and rushed up to a door of a house as though going in for his papers. However, having entered the door, he basically stood behind the door, took off his hat and coat, and started retracing his steps past the policeman, who again did not recognise him in the semi-darkness. So that's Mm -hmm. twice now in the space of a day or two that he's used the same trick to avoid recapture. Good man. And fair play, it's worked both times. Yeah. So from there, he then walked onwards to Parma. At the railway station there, he bought a ticket for Milan and while in the waiting room two more police officers noticed the bad state of his feet and that he was wearing shoes that were too small for him which was affecting his feet and were arresting him. Now this isn't actually the first time we've come across a POW escaper being arrested in Italy because they noticed the state of his shoes or his feet. Absolutely. Now again he did try to brazen it out and he produced a forged German pass which stated he was a German police officer and the forged letter asking the Italian military and civilian authorities to afford every assistance to him. While the pass and letter had been forged in the camp by an artist the carabinieri still took him to the police headquarters where the chief political officer, a civilian, started to interrogate him. Asking what he was doing in Parma he became quite rude which acting as a German officer is entirely fitting and told him that German officers were not a accustomed to stating their business to Italian civilians and that the German consul in Milan, to whom he was reporting, could tell him all about him. This clearly put the wind up the Italians a little bit because the political officer reported this to the lieutenant colonel in command of the Carabinieri there and after two and a half hours his papers were returned to him and he was told with apologies for his arrest that he was free to go. Wow. Just quite an achievement. I know he joined as an interpreter but we really have to respect his ability to communicate and converse in a number of different languages and cultures because presumably he spoke Greek, being a Greek citizen, but he's also proven that he's more than fluent to brazen it out in both Italian and German. And English. And indeed so apologetic were the Italians that they actually gave him a police escort to the train station and put him on his train to Milan. Oh beautiful. And and this was sort of an apology for his arrest. So he ends up on the train to Milan and travels the 125 kilometres or so. Now as I said earlier, Milan is quite far north in Italy. It's relatively close to the Swiss border. And rather than trying to go too far too close to the Swiss frontier by train, he decided to get a little bit closer and then start walking. 
Unfortunately, while he was making his way up a mountain track, he was hit by another bout of malaria. Ugh. Fair play to him, he decided to descend back down, but was once again spotted and arrested. Mm -hmm. And again, he tried to brazen it out. This time, the colonel at the police headquarters told him that he knew all about the trick that he'd pulled in Parma, and that he wouldn't be getting out of it again, and promptly returned him after a night in jail back to Modena, where he was given 30 days solitary confinement. With malaria? With malaria. Lovely. Now, having served his 30 days solitary confinement, his reward was to be sent to Campo 5, at Gavi. Oh, excellent. And here we start to see the two threads coming together. We do. Now, whilst we've now got both in the same camp, they weren't quite to escape together yet, were they? Not yet. No, Pam was actually to make one more escape attempt. Which would be his sixth Sixth escape attempt, attempt while yes. in Gavi. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail because it's covered in great depth and detail in the Alistair Cram episodes because Cram was involved in this escape attempt. I am referring to the Cistern Tunnel escape. Yes. So if anyone does want to go into greater depth on the system tunnel escape, I would recommend going back to episodes 11 and 12. On series one. On series one, yes. Thank you. With Professor David Goss on the Alistair Cram escape. But that was the sixth escape attempt that Buck Pam attempted. And both Sukas and Pam were to remain at Gavi until just after the Italian armistice in September 1943. So in Pam's case, that was about a year after he arrived in Gavi. And in Sukas' case, it would have been only about three months after now, his arrival. Now, of course, this was quite a interesting situation. So to recap very quickly, mm -hmm. obviously the Italians decided they weren't going to play in this game anymore and left. And of course, there was various negotiations that were going on with the Allies. There were various things that were expected of the Italians, which didn't materialise, mm -hmm. shall we say. Which meant that we don't quite know who, but the prisoners were all given a sort of stay-in-place order, weren't they? Stay whilst, order, yeah. Yeah, whilst everything was sorted out. Which then results that all the prisoners are basically sitting in camps with guards who aren't really guarding them anymore but mm -hmm. they've been told to stay still and of course what happens is the Germans come in take over the camps and in some cases move people on but otherwise they find themselves back under So some did control. try making an attempt to get back to Allied lines because of course the Allies had landed in southern Italy by this point. Yes. So some did attempt to get down to the Allied front and to be fair the point of the stay put order was to effectively avoid having thousands tens of thousands of prisoners of war wandering through rural Italy heading towards a live front. Yes, of So course. there was a logic behind it. There it's was. Not, it's not one of those completely insane orders that has come from on high that no one can really understand. I'm sure it was frustrating as a prisoner of war to be given that order, but there was a very sound logic. Now, as I say, some did try to escape, but some also tried to hide in the camp so that when the Germans did move them on and move them up to Germany, they were in effect hiding out in the camp in order to basically wait until the Germans had moved everyone on and moved on themselves and mm. then appear out of hiding and then try and attempt to return to Allied front lines in southern Italy at this stage. Now, Pam was one of those who tried to hide out in the dungeons okay. of the fortress at Gavi, well, along with 20 others, including the SBO, uh, Brigadier Clifton. However, he was noticed as being missing. Now, we have discussed before his physical presence, so I imagine it wasn't a great shock that he was noticed, noticed. as being yeah. missing. And he actually, he states that as they could not find an entrance to the dungeons, they started blasting operations and we were literally blasted out of, of the dungeon. So I think discretion was the better part of valour here and they yes. gave themselves up rather yes. than trying to brazen it out. Which I think was a smart move. However, it did mean that they were moved onto a train fairly quickly and sent 
sent north towards Moosberg. Now, interestingly, Sukas makes his first mention of Pam at this stage in his escape report. Okay. So he states that he was one of those 20 that tried to hide in the dungeons alongside Brigadier Clifton, the SBO, and eventually were moved onto railway trucks. He says, I was in the same truck as Colonel David Sterling of SAS fame. I had planned to escape during the journey with Captain Pam, but we had no opportunity. Now, Pam goes into a bit more detail as to why there was no opportunity. The train didn't leave till dusk, which was fortunate as it gave them the entire night to escape before reaching Trento and the South Tyrol beyond. As soon as the doors closed, everyone went into a frenzy like terriers after rats searching for the best way out. Nearly all had concealed some implement for cutting through the walls. Pocket knives, sharpened spoons, hacksaw blades and even a set of dentist drills. But these were useless in this car which unlike most of the others, was made of steel rather than wood. This didn't stop Buck Pam, who stripped down to his little leopard skin underwear and with superhuman strength began to bend and break the door to allow them access to the outside latch that secured it. By the time they approached Verona four hours later, they were nearly out. Wow. And I can't particularly imagine that leopard skin underwear is service issue garments. I imagine not. Why have I got like a mental image of Tarzan or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Because he says, we had already loosened the door of our truck, but our chances of escaping from the train was spoiled by some Italians who tried to get away prematurely. So basically as a result of people trying to jump before the right opportunity, security was heightened around his truck and therefore they had no opportunity to escape. So they arrived at Moosberg, which is Stalag 7A, on the 19th of September 1943. Now, they hadn't been in Moosberg all that long when I think it'd be fair to say their reputation preceded them. Yes. Between them, they've already tried nine escape attempts by this stage. Yes. Not including attempting to loosen the door in the truck of the train. Because, having only been in Moosberg two days, they were told by a French prisoner there, who had heard of their previous attempts, that it would be possible to get out of the camp. Now, the original idea was to join one of the Russian working parties by sneaking into the Russian compound. However, before that scheme could materialise, the Germans warned all Air Force officers to be ready to move that afternoon. So we're talking still only about the 21st, 20th, 21st of September here, having arrived on the 19th. Sukas and Pam therefore approached some American Air Force officers who were not interested in escaping, who agreed to leave the camp in their name. Now, because the Germans hadn't taken a roll call at this stage, they were only really concerned with numbers, so they were able to swap identities with relative ease and remain in Moosberg rather than moving on. So the Air Force officers were moved on the 23rd of September, so this is only four days after they had arrived. So it was a fairly short stopover, but of course because they've changed identities, both Sukas and Pam remained in Moosberg. Moosberg being in southern Bavaria. Okay. So over the next couple of days, he and Sukas started working on devising another scheme to escape. Now the original plan was to try and get out as part of a French party of trusted prisoners of war. Yeah. However, before that was able to commence, they had devised another the plan to hang under a tractor-drawn trailer which left the camp with Red Cross parcels for working camps attached to Stalag 7-8. There was often a central camp and then a number of smaller working camps yes. dotted around in the area and this trailer was taking the Red Cross parcels out to all the satellite camps that surrounded Moosberg. Mm-hmm. Now, the driver of the tractor had told them that the Germans made a point of looking underneath the trailer, but it was worth taking a chance. So on the 29th of September, the next time the tractor went out, they took this chance, hid underneath the trailer, and presumably either this was an occasion when it wasn't checked, 
or it was checked and they weren't spotted. Either way, they managed to get out of camp by hanging underneath the trailer of this. Oh, brilliant. They got away with it. They got away with it, exactly. And in fact, the trailer pulled up close to a train to unload its parcels. And when they pulled up into the train yard, they dropped from underneath the trailer and made a run for it, basically, yeah. through, through the goods yard. They didn't have many rations or money on them. However, they had managed to sell some Red Cross food to the French in the camp and had acquired 200 Reichmarks between them and had also bought a compass. Oh, useful. So having hidden up in woods nearby until it was dark, they started walking in a northerly direction in order first to skirt the prison camp at Moosburg and then eventually intending to make their way to Munich because the French that they'd been speaking to in the camp had told them that there were French workers there that would help them. Now, they actually ran into trouble relatively early. A German officer on a bike initially arrested them because Sukas had aroused his suspicions by trying to hide behind a small bush. Now, that would arouse suspicions, I would have thought. Yes. While they did try to persuade the German that they were French workers working in a farm nearby, he expressed his intention of escorting them to the Stalag to check their identity. While discussing this point, they ran into two German privates who were dressed for the evening. Okay. While their superior ordered them to take them, they weren't particularly keen to do so. They had other, in- they had they had other a- things on their minds. Exactly, yes. Right. I wouldn't want to speculate what those other things were. No. Not escorting Not people. escorting prisoners back to camp. Yeah. And so, on their way there, they bumped into another officer who was on a bicycle who was going on his way to the Stalag. And so the two soldiers convinced him to take Sukas and Pam back to the camp. However, he was unarmed, walked ahead of them and trailed his bicycle alongside him. And so, while they maintained this facade of being French and answering in German and speaking French or German to them, when they were passing the pond, Pam took the opportunity to knock the guy out throw him into the pond and push his bike in after him and instantly of course scarpered now the officer did fire several shots at them but none came even close to hitting them so they managed to make their getaway pretty quickly taking to foot and walking at night they made their way towards munich and five days after their escape they reached munich on the night of the 4th of october now the previous night an air raid had taken place but this was actually helpful to them because it it meant that everyone was confused confused underground out of the way and so they were able to sneak into this major city Mm -hmm. totally undetected now for context Moosburg to Munich is round about 50 kilometers and they've covered that in five days around about 10 kilometers every night which is pretty decent going actually on that yeah now the French at Moosburg had told them to make for a cafe in Munich where they were to ask for a certain Frenchman it's all very cloak and dagger it's great isn't isn't it? it yeah and they fairly easily met the man in question as soon as they arrived and he had arranged for Sukas and Pam to be put up in barracks for the French workers so this is a civilian prisoner camp essentially yeah and they were also given overalls and what have you and put on the work roll so that they were completely incognito in Munich now there were a couple of plans that were put in place to try and get them out of Munich mm-hmm. one of which I have to admit I find quite entertaining because he states during this period I was approached by a Frenchman working in the BMW and Mercedes-Benz aircraft factory who said when he discovered I was a pilot so this is Pam again mm-hmm. that I might be able to steal a plane from his factory now we've heard rumours of this sort of thing happening before where pilots kind of get their dander up and try to steal a plane it has happened on occasion where they've even got into the plane some it's even... walking absolutely and, and swimming and everything else and if you're a pilot I imagine the temptation 
temptation was extremely high to nick a plane and fly home. However, and this is the bit I love, he states that this was not possible as the Germans put an Alsatian dog inside each aircraft every night. Oh, I love it. Well, I mean, if you think about it, if you've got an airfield where you would naturally disperse machines all around the perimeter so they're as far scattered as possible to eliminate damage from bombing, etc., etc., then you've got to put a sentry by every single one of those to make sure it's not tampered with. Yes, but I I would have thought maybe the perimeter would be guarded, possibly a sentry each one, to to actually put an Alsatian dog inside each plane each night. It needs a lot of dogs. It does require a lot of dogs. It probably wouldn't be lovely on the inside by the morning. I'm not sure many dogs liked going in there. No, I can only assume they didn't pull the canopy over the top. If it was one that had that, it could be one with a door in it. You're not going to put a placid Alsatian in it, are you? You don't don't traditionally have placid Alsatians as guard dogs. No, they they tend to be a bit bitey bitey, as you say. They would be a bit bitey bitey, so you'd probably put a bitey bitey dog in each one. It's not going to be that happy about it. So, probably already hungry in the ground. Oh yeah, hungry and yeah. No, I can see. This. I can see why Pam backed out of this I, idea. I can as well. Yes. Having decided that stealing a plane that is occupied by an angry, hungry Alsatian every evening was not a good idea for him, one of the advantages of being located in a French civilian workers' barrack was that they were of course surrounded by people who were working in various industries, sectors around Munich, including one who worked in the goods yard at the train station. Mm-hmm. And his proposal was that they hide out in some beer barrels, empty beer barrels, that were to be loaded onto a truck and moved to Strasbourg. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's relatively close to what was then the French border. It is, of course, now in France. Yes. But has been in a highly disputed region of France and Germany at this point for several years. Mm. At this point, they were actually joined by two other escapers. They were joined by Captain Richard Carr and Sergeant Lee Gordon, who was an American of the US Army Air Force. Mm-hmm. Both of them had also escaped escape from Moosberg. Okay and uh, made contact with the Frenchmen in Munich and gathered together. Now, all four of them were put into these beer barrels and left Munich on the 23rd of October. Mm-hmm. However, Carr and Gordon were not to complete the journey with Sukas and Pam. They were only to join them for a part of it because Carr was actually later arrested. And while Gordon did eventually get back to the UK, he was separated from them quite early on. Oh, okay. So they were only joined briefly by them. Mm-hmm. But I think it's worth just noting that they were joined because these were fellow escapers from Moosberg. Yeah. So having left Munich, they eventually arrived in Strasbourg on the 27th of October, which is actually a fair distance away. It's about 375 kilometers from Munich to Strasbourg. So they've actually gone a fair, yeah, a fair distance, distance across Germany. So having arrived in Strasbourg with Carr, Gordon having got separated from them earlier, the agreement was that Sukas and Pam would go ahead and Carr would follow them about 15 minutes later. However, they were never to meet up again because because Carr was arrested before he met them at the rendezvous. Right. So having been reduced back down to the two of them again, they decided to just make their own way to France. Yeah. And they made their way towards the Marne-Rhine Canal, the plan being to meet someone who could help them across on a barge, but no one was willing to take the risk. So they started walking along the canal on foot and eventually reached a point about three kilometres from the frontier, not far from Herzing. So upon crossing the frontier, they made their way to a village in France called Ember-Menil, and they knew from their map that they were by that stage in France. Mm -hmm. It was there that they got sheltered 
helicopter from a farm and were put in touch with people at Luneville near Nancy at the end of October. Now, both reports at this stage state that the rest of their journey was organised for them. As we've seen in several others. Indeed. Now, it's not clear from either of these reports which escape line they joined at this stage, but it's pretty clear they did join an escape line. Yes. But we have to assume that if they've made contact with a French underground stroke escape line at Luneville, the nearest point at which they could make contact with an escape line was at Dijon. Now, both are located in the sort of same corner of France. Now, on that basis, the likely route that they followed was from Luneville to Dijon, and from there they would go down to Lyon, then to Marseille, Perpignan, cross the Pyrenees, into Barcelona, across to Madrid and down to Gibraltar. And it was from Gibraltar that Pam returned to the UK on the 21st of December 1943, nearly three months after escaping from Moosburg. However, Sukas was to remain in Gibraltar for another three months, not leaving Gibraltar until the 26th of March 1944. Now, there's no reason given as to why he remained for another three months. The only conclusion I can come to is, as an intelligence officer, I can only assume that he stayed on in order to provide as much information and intelligence as he could possibly provide, both from an SBS perspective, but also from a prisoner of war perspective, his travels, you know, he'd been through Munich, he'd been through Italy, yeah. you know, and of course travelled across Germany, had been through occupied France and made his way down through occupied France. So I, I can only assume that as an intelligence officer, he was someone that they targeted to get as much information and intel. And it's also possible that he was identified as someone who could be useful for gathering further intelligence from future escapers who went through Gibraltar. I bet. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. So obviously I try and look at what happened to these guys post their escape. Mm-hmm. Sukas, there wasn't an awful lot. However, his mission that he was on became a film. Right, okay. So that SBS mission to attack the airfields was actually a film in 1954 called They Who Dare. Okay. Not one I'm familiar no, with. No, nor me, I must admit. But one I will look up. Stars Dirk Bogart. Right. So, pretty who, heavy character. Yeah, who, who is in A Bridge Too Far. He is in A Bridge Too Far. Plays Browning, doesn't he? Yeah, he was also a photographic interpreter in the war. Was he? Yes. Excellent. For real, at RAF Medmenham. Just thought I'd add that in there. Thought you might. Thought I might. But we did get a little bit more on Palm. Okay. Which we take from David Gus's research here. And it says that after Buck arrived back in London, he was given well-deserved leave, for which he headed straight back to Egypt. Mostly because what no one knew was that he was actually engaged. Nine years younger, and from one of their most prominent families, he had met a young lady at a dance in the year before he was shot down. And by going back there, he got promoted to major and was reposted to Middle East Command, and he got married to this young lady in April of 1944. He remained in Egypt after the war, taking a job with the newly formed Iranian airways but tragically in September 1950 he was on his way to Tehran to pick up a spare engine and flight to Jeddah improperly secured in the back it shifted on takeoff and altered the center of gravity of the aeroplane which makes it become unflyable and down the aeroplane went Buck Palm was dead age 41 so uh, a sad end for him Mm. Uh, but again nothing on Sukus to summarise then, so we've had two individuals from two completely different backgrounds of two mm. completely different ages who have, how can we put it, they certainly caused enough trouble in trying to escape yes. uh, the number of times that they did. The result being that they basically got together, as you say, like minds met. Having made their way across, they, they get back. Yeah, a wonderful, wonderful story, actually. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at 
fytwio podcast at gmail.com. <laughs>